I count it a, a wonderful joy to be with you, to be able to be uh, and see with my own eyes what my friend Pastor Jay has been part of and where God has him serving. And I'm going to ask you, with reverence for God and his holy word, would you please stand as I read aloud and you follow along in your own Bible. So this is the word of God. I'm going to read the entire chapter, but we're going to focus our attention on verses 7 through 11. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep me back. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. It's the most important thing you're going to hear today. Would you please be seated? Ali Hafed was a tenant farmer, a subsistence farmer in Ethiopia. He had a very, very small plot of land. And even in good years, he would just barely grow enough food to be able to survive. He was living hand to mouth. It was a meager existence, and it was a challenge. But then you throw in tough years when there's a blight or a drought, and man, he just got weary of the difficult life that he was living. One day, a Catholic priest was traveling through the area, kind of going door to door, hut to hut, visiting with people, and he began describing for Ali Hafed some of the wealth that people were finding in diamonds. He said, hey, look, there's a lot of people who don't have to live hand to mouth. They have tremendous wealth. They have tremendous security. And, but it's found in these little rocks, diamonds. And so Ali Hafed began daydreaming about a better life, an easier life, and soon became so dissatisfied with that little farm that he abandoned his family. He left that little farm plot of land, and he went on a quest all throughout Africa looking for diamonds. As he was looking for his better life, looking for a treasure in different places, he went through all sub-Saharan Africa and never found anything. He continued his journey up through North Africa into Egypt and still hadn't found anything, so he continued his journey up through the modern Middle East, like Israel, what we call Israel now, Lebanon, going into Syria. Still, he never found anything that was meaningful for him. So disappointed, he continued his journey across the Mediterranean coast, going through modern-day Turkey and then Greece and Italy. And then, having gone all the way through Spain, he finally, within such despair and hopelessness, he felt like he's gone all over the world looking for something satisfying, never found anything, and he ended his own life jumping off of the cliffs of Spain down into the rocks and the ocean below. But what makes the story of Ali Hafed all the more tragic is that just after he left that little farm, he had a relative who began plowing the field. And when he was plowing that field, they'd start collecting all the rocks that would come up. And when they were collecting the rocks, they'd put them in piles. If you travel the world today, you can find all of these farms where there's piles of rocks around the boundaries of the field that's there. And sure enough, one day that Catholic priest was traveling through again, was talking to his relative, 
And by chance, there was a glimmer of light that shone off of one of those piles of rocks. And they discovered the world's wealthiest acre of diamonds right there in Ali Hafed's backyard. He didn't even know the fortune that he held in his own fingertips. He went on a quest looking all over the world for something that had been right there in his lap the whole time. Most people say, well, Jeff, that's a nice story. and We can definitely see how it relates to a passage of scripture like this, but it can't possibly be true. Well, I read about it in a book called Acres of Diamonds. To the best of my understanding, it's a true story that's illustrating that too often we are leaving the value of what we possess on a quest, looking for something out there somewhere that actually we possess the whole time. David, the psalmist who wrote this psalm, did not make the same mistake as Ali Hafed. Instead, he's someone who had tremendous success, not only as a king, not only as a warrior, a conqueror, certainly a very, very wealthy man. And yet he recognized that the most valuable thing that he possessed was not a ring. It was not an authority. It wasn't a sword. No, he said, I have something in my hands, the revelation of God, his word. And that is more to be desired than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. In Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, there's a depiction of the enormous value of the Bible. And here's what I love. I love coming to Sunset Bible Church, a place where I know that you're committed to the Scriptures. I hear about your commitment to the Scriptures, not only by the preaching that happens every week. You read, explain, and apply the Bible. And you know what? Sometimes you look around at all of these big, successful other churches in the community, and you think, well, maybe we're just doing the wrong thing. I want you to know that you're doing exactly the right thing. Because the value that you have of the Bible and investing it into the lives of all the children that are here and through the different programs that you have, I want to encourage you today and remind you that the enormous value of this scripture, and in verses 7 through 11, we find the value of the Bible in both what it is and what it does. You see, verses 7 through 11 is a Hebrew parallelism. A Hebrew parallelism is a poem that doesn't depend upon a rhyme or sound or alliteration. If you were to take a, if you were to take a, an English poem and try to translate it into Russian or Filipino, it doesn't make any sense because it depends so much upon the rhyme or the sound of it. Wait a second. When it came to Hebrew poetry, Hebrew Hebrew poetry didn't depend upon the sound. It depended upon repetition. And they would repeat the same idea over and over again so that this poem can be as beautiful in English or in Spanish, as it is in Hebrew. And through that repetition, he's bringing up these same ideas and repeating them over and over again so that we can understand the value of what the Bible is. The nouns and the adjectives are telling us what the Bible is. The the, um, verbal units are telling us what the Bible does. And so I'm not going to give you a difficult outline. It's really simple today. I want us to consider the value of the Bible because of what it is and the value of the Bible because of what it does. Let's consider this passage of scripture. It comes and it begins by telling us the law of the Lord is perfect. And then it talks about the testimonies of the Lord. It talks about the commands of the Lord. It talks about all these different descriptions of or synonyms of what we know as the Bible. He's talking about the revelation of God. But all of those phrases have this key phrase in common, of the Lord. The word L-O-R-D, all in capitals, at least in my translation, is a, is a translation of the name Jehovah or the name Yahweh. He's talking about a covenantal, relational God, a God who desires intimacy and relationship with us. Remember, that's the same 
same one that God used to come to Moses and say, I am that I am. I'm going to give you a closer, deeper revelation of myself. Now, it's intended for us that verse 7 should contrast with verse 1. Take a look back at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The word God there is the most general name for him. It's the name Elohim. And Elohim is the word that's used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What this passage is telling us is that there's general truth about God that all people everywhere can know. In Romans chapter 1, it talks about general revelation when it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what can be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For through the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen so that they are without excuse. My friends, just by the heavens, the sun, moon, and stars above, just by the mountains that we can enjoy, just by the ocean that is so beautiful around us, just by there are certain things that we can know about God. We call that general revelation. That means that God has made himself known to all people everywhere. Here's what we learn about general revelation. Take a look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, day unto day utter speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. That means day and night at all times, God is making himself known. Take a look at verse 3. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. That means in every single language, God is making himself known through this general revelation. Look at verse 4. Their lines gone throughout the earth. Their words to the end of the world. That means in every place. In every place, in every language, at all times, God is making himself known in a general way to all people. That means that we can go out fly fishing and we can know certain things about God by the stream that we're fly fishing. Or there's certain things we can know about God when we are skiing down a hill and enjoying the beauty of that mountain and, and, the, and the snow and this, just that day. Certain things we can know about God by going out into the middle of the ocean. For those of you who go out in the ocean and fish, man, you never feel so small as when you're out in the middle of this ocean and you can't even see any land around you. And you just realize, I am so small compared to the one who made this. The Bible says that God is so much bigger than the world around us that he can measure the mountains like fruit in a scale. When I used to go with my mom to a grocery store and grab an orange and put it up in a scale. I'm like, wow, I can grab an orange because I'm so much bigger than the orange. God takes Pikes Peak or he takes, the, uh, he, he takes the Sierra Nevadas, or he takes the whatever mountains, and he can take Pikes Peak and measure it like fruit in a scale because he's so much bigger. Look, we can know general truth about God because of general revelation, but verse 7 is telling us the immense value of the Bible because now it's revealing details of Jehovah. You see, it's not enough for you to just know general truth about God through creation, but now you can know intimate details about God Let me try to put it this way. I used to receive something really valuable in the mail every couple of days. I was living in East Tennessee where I was a youth pastor for a time. And my wife was in Greenville, South Carolina, where she was finishing up her college. And so we lived far away from each other. And now we're engaged, we're in love. But you know what? Those were the days before we had email. We didn't even have email to be able to write notes to each other back in those days. Does anyone here remember pre-email days? Or, or how about unlimited phone calls? We didn't have unlimited phone calls. I had to pay long distance charges. And man, as a youth pastor, it was too expensive for me to call her and use uh, uh, the long distance. We didn't even have text messages in that day. I mean, there were all these different things, that we, disadvantages that we had. So every couple of days, I received something really valuable in the mail. I'd run over to my mailbox and I'd open it up and I'd look and and no, it had nothing to do with publishers clearing house sweepstakes, which those were the days that I'm talking about. But I'd get a love letter 
from Nancy. And when I got that letter from Nancy, I didn't just open it and kind of casually glance at it and discard it with all the junk mail. No, I poured into every detail. That thing was so valuable, valuable to me that I would go over every word and read every nuance of what she could possibly be saying in that word. And then I'd hold it up to the light to see if there were tear stains. You know, she may have been missing me so bad she's crying as she wrote that note. And then I'm smelling it to see if there's perfume. Maybe I could smell the perfume on her hand, or maybe even better, she sprays perfume on it for me. And then at the end, I'm looking for the lip prints where she might have left a little kiss to seal that letter at the very end. That love letter was so valuable because it was a revelation of someone who wanted intimacy and closeness and relationship. You see, that love letter was more desirable than gold. And what I want you to know that this book is so valuable because this is the love letter of Jehovah. This is Jehovah who's not just wanting you to know general elements of who he is, strong, powerful, good. No, he wants you to know the details that you don't get from just sitting out on a, on a beach staring at the ocean and the sunset. You see, as great as general revelation is, it doesn't give you the details that tell you that this God who made all these things is pure and holy And he's just, and he always does what is right. You see, you wouldn't know the details about him, except that the Bible tells you that his mercies are new every morning, and he's patient with us. You wouldn't even know that he's loving. By looking at the world around us, you wouldn't know the details of the love by which he's coming and saying, I want you to know every detail about me. And this book, my friends, is so valuable, because it's every detail that God wants you to know about him. And as much as we love general revelation, this special revelation of God is more to be desired than gold, is sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Let me encourage you something. Stop treating the Bible as a good luck charm where you read a verse a day to keep the devil away. Stop treating this as some sort of ornament, that you. but realize that this is the key into relationship with Jehovah. It's written not just so you can have an argument with your friend and win an argument. No, no. This is written so that you can know the living and true God. Every page of this book is written so that you can know and have intimacy with him. If a love letter from Nancy was valuable to me, how much more important is the love letter from Jehovah? It's valuable because of what it is. But it's not just the nouns. You also have to look at the adjectives. Take a look at it. It tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect. And then it tells us that the, um, it tells us that the testimony of the Lord is sure. And then it tells us that... I'm sorry, I've lost my place. I got to keep going. The statutes of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous. All of those adjectives describing the Bible are really summarizing two main ideas. And the first idea is that it's sure. To say it's sure means it's foundational. It means that it's a solid ground that you can stand upon. It's the same idea of what Jesus said in the parable when he said the wise man The one who hears the word of God and does it is like a wise man who builds his house upon a rock. And the rain's going to come, the the wind's going to blow against the house, the storm's going to beat against it, but it's going to stand firm because it's built upon a rock. He says the one who hears the word of God and doesn't do it, he's foolish. He has the same storms. He has the same wind that beats against his house, the same rain that falls, the same storm that comes, but his house crashes because it's built upon sand. Let me tell you something. When you start thinking about the Bible as a solid rock, all you have to do is realize in the last two years, the COVID world that we're in, that on Christ, the solid rock I stand and all other ground is sinking sand. Here's what I mean by that. 
These last two years have kind of annihilated all those things that we thought were trustworthy, that we could be confident in. For instance, two years ago, I I was pretty sure that the economy was nice and strong. I mean, there's people who have jobs. Everyone who wanted a job could get a job. And there seemed to be money that's flowing around. And man, it seemed like the economy was so strong. We never thought that that economy could be turned off in just one overnight session. And that economy just dries up quickly. Wait a second. The economy is shifting sand. And you may have had a false security. You may have had a false confidence in the economy. But COVID, this COVID world has come back and said, wait, you can't build your life upon that shifting sand. Here's the other thing that's happened during COVID. During COVID, some of our confidence in modern medicine has changed. I I can remember having so much confidence in doctors and nurses. I was like, man, you know what? It seemed like they're solving everything. And here's the truth. If you're a doctor or a nurse, we greatly appreciate the sacrifices that you made in these last two years to serve people, even at, at your own risk. You've served our communities and thank God for you. But in the last two years, I'll listen to one doctor who says, hey, here's a treatment that's really effective. And then someone else will say this. And then we all can agree that we never thought the World Health Organization or, or that the, the medical practice could be as influenced by politics as it's become. I mean, there's one doctor who says this treatment is very effective. And then there's someone else who comes and says, yeah, but if you use that, you're going to turn into a horse. I mean, I'm being, I'm being facetious, but you understand that maybe our confidence in medicine was a misplaced confidence because maybe that is shifting sand. Maybe we need to come back to a solid foundation upon which we can build. Or how about education? I mean, we had so much confidence in education and now we're to the point where we're like, man, we're not sure that... We're not sure that that big bureaucratic education system cares about me and my family and what's best for our children. So now that's shaken. Or how about our confidence and even an election system? I'm not trying to get political and I'm not going to tell you an opinion of it, but I never imagined that I would be questioning whether the election in America is actually secure. Remember years ago, they used to have an election in Afghanistan and they said it can be secure if everyone who votes has a purple thumb, they dip it into ink and pull it out and now you can only vote once. I never thought I'd get to the point where I'm like, man, you know what? I think maybe the purple thumb idea is a good idea if we can secure our... Now, I'm not going to give you an opinion of where I stand, except for I'm going to tell you, I never thought that I'd be even questioning election integrity in America. Are you serious? There's only one solid rock. There's only one foundation upon which we can really stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So here's what I want you to know. If you're going to build your dream house, if you're going to build a multi-million dollar mansion... Don't you want to make sure that that thing's on solid rock? I mean, I hear these stories every year. It seems like it's coming out of Southern California. No offense to anyone who may be from Southern California, but they build these big old houses on the side of a hill, and then the rainy season comes, and the mudslide washes the house down the hill. How does that make any sense to anybody? Don't you want to make sure that you're going to build your dream house on a solid rock? Here's what I want you to know. The Word of God is the foundation upon which you can build your life. Is the foundation upon which you can build your marriage. Everyone that I know right now is questioning, how is it that we can have a marriage that is solid, that it withstands all the storms of life? If you go to the word of God, it becomes the foundation that marriages can be built upon, that families can be built upon, that communities, that churches are built upon. That's why when we go to Africa, we're not going with a Western approach toward life, culture. They don't need American democracy. They're not needing our Western idea of capitalism. 
You know what they need is they need a foundation that is the living word of God that is a foundation, a rock upon which they can stand. I'm telling you, when you have a rock that you can firmly stand upon, that is something that's more to be desired than gold. Yea, than much fine gold is sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. But this passage also emphasizes this truth. It's not only a solid rock. It's not only a love letter. But he also talks about something that is perfect. What do we mean by perfect? By perfect, we mean we have something that never needs to be new and improved. Now, I have in my pocket today some cell phones, all right? I have an uh, iPhone, which is given to me by government issue. This was kind of a blessing because I didn't have to pay for it. Thank you for your tax contribution for... But then again, this is the way that the boss can contact me all moments of every day. So thanks for nothing for, you know, that. I, but then I also have another phone here. This phone is a um, Pixel. It's a Google Pixel. And when I got this phone, my kids had told me that this is the coolest phone that's out there. That you can talk to it and it'll answer every question that you have. That it's got all this memory. And they said, this is the coolest phone, Dad. You got to get this. So I did. And two months later, they came out with a new and improved Pixel. How, how can it be that there are always new and improved phones? And as soon as I push a button that says update, you know, I'm going to have a system update. As soon as I push that system update, I'm pretty sure that there's going to be less memory and it's going to slow down. And now there's going to be a need for a new and improved phone. I mean, you have the iPhone 7, and then you have the i8, and then the 9, and the 10. And in between all those numbers, you have letters that come in. Oh, we have the i10s or x or whatever they are. It's kind of like some of you guys may identify with. It's kind of like Microsoft. Why can't they come up with one perfect computer operating system? I'm old enough that I remember uh, Windows 3.1. And then I remember Vista. And then after Vista, there's the next thing. Aren't you glad that you'll never have a Bible that needs to be new and improved? Aren't you glad that when it comes to the Bible, you're never going to have Bible 3.1 or Bible Vista or Bible whatever it may be. You have one living word. And the Bible says this, forever your word is established in heaven. For me to have something that never needs to be new and improved, give me so much confidence. It's so valuable to me because when I'm reading and memorizing this book, I'm never wasting my time because I read it and I memorize it and there's never going to be something new and improved. And some, some of the people that are here are like, well, wait, Steph, how about the NIV and the ESV and the King James and all these different translations? Well, wait a second. We have translations not because the Bible has changed. We have translations because language changes. And the way that you as parents talk might be different than the vernacular of your young people. And so we may, may not be using the these and the thous in our language anymore. We have different translations not because the Bible has changed. The Bible is living and abiding forever, forever established in heaven. Think about that for a minute. We have something that is not... Something that is not going to be influenced by all the sway and the ebb and flow of scientific opinion. I get weary of the people who said, just trust the science. And I'm like, wait a second. Science continues to test and grow in his knowledge and change. And so I'm not anti-science. I'm just recognizing that science can be kind of shifting sand. But if I come back to the word of God that is living and abiding forever, then I realize it's perfect. It's something that is sure. It is a foundation and if it's a foundation, then it's something that's never going to be new and improved. And I'm just promising you, if you could come up with a phone that never needs to be new and improved, it's valuable. Well, I'm giving you a, a book that never needs to be new and improved. But it's not only valuable because of what it is. It's also valuable because of what it does. You hear these verbal units. It says it converts the soul, that it makes wise the simple, that it rejoices the heart, that it enlightens the eyes. I'm telling you, this book is so valuable because of what it does. 
And by talking about what it does, it begins by saying it converts the soul. Now, converting the soul is an Old Testament description of a word that we know as repentance. As we go in a certain direction, and within a certain direction, you realize, okay, here's where I am, but that's where I need to be. It's a change of mind that results in a change of direction. Now, some people misunderstand repentance, and they think repentance is a resolve to stop sinning. And I just want you to know, you cannot resolve to stop sinning. Repentance isn't a promise to turn over a new leaf and change. No, repentance. Repentance involves conversion. And the conversion of the soul shows you here's where you are, that's where you need to be, and here's how to get there. Frankly, what I'm talking about is the value of a map. Nancy and I ended up getting married out of Tennessee in South Carolina. We moved to Colorado Springs, and that's where we established our family in my hometown. Soon we had five children. Man, they came fast. We had a boy and then a girl, and then, oh no, I'm sorry, we had a girl, then a boy, and then we had twins. Woo! Boy and a girl added to that. So we ended up having five kids, very, very young, and we needed to make the trip to South Carolina to visit grandparents regularly. And so we didn't fly because, man, airfare for five kids is a little expensive, and we were, so we'd drive. And when we were driving, we'd drive straight through. And to drive straight through meaning that we drove through the night. We'd stop only for gas and for more McNuggets. That's what, you know, it's feeding the kids. And you're like, Jeff, why did you drive straight through? Well, here's a little secret. If you have five children and if you leave at night, you get halfway there before the kids even know what hit them. They sleep through the night and it works out pretty well. But when we made that drive, we always had to go through the most confusing city in America, St. Louis. St. Louis had so many roads coming in and going out in every different direction you could imagine. And they had circles that were going around it. And so every time I'm in St. Louis or driving through St. Louis, I get lost. And if you get lost in St. Louis, you're not just lost. You're on the wrong side of the Mississippi River. And so you don't even know which highway to get on or which bridge to cross. So imagine getting lost in St. Louis all the time. One of the times that we drove, I had just finished all day ministering through a Christmas Eve service. We had Christmas Eve services through the day. We come to the end and we're like, hey, let's load the kids up. Let's see if we can drive. Let's spend part of Christmas with grandma and grandpa. So for some reason, my energy was high. I'm thinking through the day. I was able to drive straight through the night. You're like, Jeff, how in the world do you do that? Well, Mountain Dew is amazing. It's all the caffeine and all that sugar. Uh, at first, all the caffeine and sugar keeps you awake, and then the pain of having to go to the bathroom, that keeps you awake a little while longer. But then I was also eating sunflower seeds. Man, it just works wonders. What? I don't know what, if it was all the salt from the sunflower seeds or if it was all the sugar and caffeine, but by the time we were approaching St. Louis, about 12 hours into the trip, I started like imagining that things were falling out of the back of trucks, so I was swerving to miss them, and I'm like, Nancy, I think it's time for you to take over. So Nancy started driving. She asked me, she said, all right, when we come to St. Louis, which highway do we take? And I'm like, mm, 57 or 64, just that one we always take. Well, obviously I gave her the wrong number because she woke me up two hours later and she said, Jeff, are we supposed to be in Indiana? Well, Indiana's up this way. We need to go back down toward Nashville this way. And so I said, all right, pull over to the side of the road. And so she, she pulled over in a tiny little one restaurant or one, um, one gas station stop. I walk in, and by the way, I don't know if you know this, but in southern Indiana, they do not speak English. I mean, it is a backwards place. And so I, I, I couldn't understand what they were saying, and I walked in and I said, excuse me, can you tell me where I am? And that's when they looked at me like, man, you are some redneck. You don't even know where you are. So I said, all right, how about this? Do you have a map? So the guy pulls out a map, and I said, show me on this map where I am. He says, here's where you're at. And I'm like, okay, there's where I am, and oh, there's where I need to be, and there's a road that connects them. 25 minutes later, we're back in the right direction, because when you're lost, there's nothing more valuable to you than a map. 
Well, let me tell you something about this book. This book tells you where you are and where you need to be and how to get there. It's a map. When it talks about how to get there, if you want to have a relationship with Jehovah, the Bible says that you must be holy. As a matter of fact, the Bible says your righteousness needs to exceed righteousness of scribes and Pharisees. It's not enough to be better than someone else. You need to be holy like God is holy. Jesus even put it this way. He said you must be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. His standard is absolute pure righteousness. This is where you need to be to have a relationship with Jehovah. But the Bible also tells you where you are. When it tells me where I am, it says all of us like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us have turned to our own way. There's none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that all of us are separated by our sins. We're separated from Jehovah. We cannot have intimacy with him. But hallelujah, the Bible is what tells us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. You see, this book, Converting the Soul, is like a map for people that are lost. It shows you where you are. It shows you where you need to be. It shows you how to get there. And I'm telling you, this is so valuable because there is no human mind that can come up with salvation by grace through faith in the Savior who died for your sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't something the human mind comes up with. As a matter of fact, let me prove this to you. By the human mind, let's talk about human religions. Let's start with Hinduism. You can go to Hinduism. You know, Hinduism has a big religion, but it's all about righteous living. I mean, they care very much about the family. They care very much about holy living. They are filled with all kinds of righteousness, but it's all about their works to appease their different gods, which is not entirely different than Islam. Islam is another effort. I'm familiar with Islam. I know the five tenets or the five pillars of Islam. They have not only their confession of faith, but then based on that, they have prayers that you do three times a day. And, and the further you walk to make your prayer, the more valuable those prayers are for your good works and for your merit. And then on top of that, you have the giving of alms. And so you're going to be very generous to your community. There's a lot of good things that happen out of that quote unquote religion. And then on top of all that, you have a pilgrimage. And if you can make a pilgrimage to Mecca, you're almost guaranteed for the future. But you know what all that is? It's all works. And listen, I'm not criticizing just other religions. How about Christianity, so-called? I mean, there's so-called Christians who are just as much into works as all those others. So maybe it's the sacraments, or maybe it's getting baptized this way in this church, and so it's baptism as a ritual, or it's doing good works, or it's following this sacrament. Wait a second, you know what they all have in common? Good works. And if by your good works you're appeasing your God, that is the human mind and what it comes up with. But this book... No, this book is so valuable because this book teaches us that it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. People, when the Bible tells us that it's by grace that we're saved through faith and that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That is not something that was invented by American evangelicalism. That's something that wasn't even invented by reformers 500 years ago. This isn't something that comes from any mind of any human or any religion. Instead, this is something by which God says, I'm going to show you where you are. I'm going to show you where you need to be. And I'm going to show you how to get there. And I'm going to show you how to get there through a Savior, the Lord Jesus. This book is more to be desired than gold. It's sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb because it's like a map for lost people to be able to come into that relationship with Jehovah. Can anyone say amen to this? Especially young people. I'm telling you, man, I, I interact with lots and lots of young people who say, hey, Pastor Jeff, in this Google world, if I want to know anything about Islam, all I have to do is say, hey, Google, 
Whoop, don't do that yet. (laughs) I'm like, hey, Google, tell me about Islam. And you know what? They have access to all this information. And all these kids are confused by all that information. Let me simplify it. I'll simplify by telling you that there's only one Savior who came to die on the cross for our sins so that we can be made acceptable to God based on his substitution where he takes the penalty for my sin. And this is not a message that is just some Western culture. It's not a white message. It's not even an American message. It's a message that came from God himself who comes and says, I'm going to convert souls. This is something we can believe and hold fast to because it's a special revelation from God. Can anyone say amen? That this book is more to be desired than gold. But in addition to that, the Bible says it rejoices the heart. Is there anyone here who knows somebody that's looking for joy in relationships? Can I promise you that you will never, ever have a relationship that is able to satisfy your joy? Maybe you're even considering checking out on your current relationship because you're like, wait, I got to find a different relationship that makes you more happy. You're never going to find joy in another person. It's just not even possible. That's way too much pressure to put on somebody. And you're not going to find true lasting joy in a house that you build or in a job that you find or a car that you drive. I can't even tell you how many people I find who thought, hey, if I just had this specific car, that'll really be satisfying. No, you're never going to find satisfaction in that. But this book is so valuable because it brings meaningful joy that totally surpasses any circumstances that you may be facing. It also makes wise the simple. And I don't have a lot of time to talk about this. Bear with me. But you remember um, the Wizard of Oz? That there was someone who was looking for a brain? All I can remember about the Scarecrow is that song he sang. Bum, ba, bum, ba, bum, 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 if I only had a brain. Remember that Scarecrow? How desperately he was looking for a brain? I'm looking at the world around us today, and I think their theme song could be bum, ba, bum, ba, bum, ba, bum, bum, if I only had a brain. I mean, they, don't, they do stuff that does, doesn't even make sense. They can't, even, they can't even figure out what's a male and a female. I mean, it's kind of straightforward biologically. But we need some wisdom. And the wisdom that we're seeking, the wisdom and the direction that we need is from God and from his word. And then there's this last one, enlightening the eyes. Would you bear with me just for a minute? I know our time is getting short. But if you're out in darkness, there's nothing more valuable to you than light. I know this because I went on a camping trip back behind on um, Pikes Peak with my brother. I was 18. He was 17. My brother and I were really close in age. So there was some sibling rivalry, you know, during, and there's a lot of sibling rivalry going on. We had a lot of controversies, but this is the moment that saved our relationship. All right. We went up on a camping trip. We were up on a ledge up on a cliff and there's a river flowing down below and a beautiful little walk. You have to walk way around to get down to the stream. So we set up our camp. We went down and we're playing in the stream. And for some reason, I was like, man, I'm going back early. So I headed back up and I got back to the campfire and I started eating the most delicious meal I've ever had. Ramen noodles. Ramen noodles around a campfire are just so good. And then you have s'mores. So I'm cooking my s'mores and I'm realizing, man, you know what? I'm having my s'more and enjoying that. But my bro- and then I started looking around. And I'm like, man, it's dark. Now, I'm not sure if it was because there was no moon that night or because of the mountains and the sun went back behind them. But when it went dark, it went pitch black. And you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And my brother was still out there. He didn't have a flashlight or matches or anything. He later told me, he said, Jeff, I was tripping over the roots of the tree. I'm bumping into rocks. I'm afraid I'm going to fall off the cliff. I'm getting myself scraped up by the tree limbs that were there. He said, I couldn't see anything. I finally just sat down 
and I was freezing because I was all wet from the street. And my stupid dog, I had a, he had a dog with him, and that dog was soaking wet, and the dog was afraid, so it's like getting him all wet. And he said, man, I was desperate. I was stuck. But his brother was back in camp thinking about, hey, you know what? My brother's out there. And so I took all the fuel from our campfire. I took all the fuel that we had collected, and I took all of that fuel and wood, and I took, took, put it on a rock that jutted out across the cliff. And then I brought a little bit of the fire from the campfire, and I lit that. And when I lit that thing up, whew, I mean, it was the biggest bonfire I've ever seen. It just lit up the night sky. And within five minutes, Dan comes stumbling into camp, all scraped up and beat up. And he hugged me, and he thanked me for saving his life. Now, let me tell you, after sibling rivalries, even to this day, Dan wants to come to me and say, hey, we need to go to counseling because you're such a mean big brother. I say, yeah, but I saved your life. Don't ever forget that I saved your life. People, if you're out in the middle of darkness, there's nothing more valuable to you than light. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to remember that it's not just here in your community. It's not just in the world where you're sending missionaries. It's not just here in this church that you're shining light. But I want you to know that you're going out with the light of Scripture into the schools where God has placed you. Maybe if you're a teacher, you go into that school. And here's one. If you go into the school as a teacher, maybe you feel like, man, I'm so overwhelmed by the darkness. Don't be overwhelmed by that. Recognize that you are carrying a light. Uh, if you're going into medicine nowadays, maybe you're going into a hospital where you're a nurse and you're like, man, I'm so overwhelmed. Nobody, wait a second. You're taking the light. And what you're taking is the light of the Lord Jesus. This whole world is lost in darkness and sin, but the light of the world is Jesus. And the light that we have is from a book that is more to be desired than gold, is sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. Can I encourage you today? What you do at Sunset Bible Church week in and week out is not a waste of time. As a matter of fact, it's exactly the right thing that you need to be doing. What this world desperately needs is, is a place where you read and explain and apply the Bible. Praise God for Pastor Jay. Can anyone say amen to that? Praise God for your elders and for your Sunday school teachers and for the people who are investing the word of God into uh, the generation. I'm looking around here today and I'm seeing all of the young people that are here with your families. And all I can say is, man, there is hope for Tacoma. And the hope for Tacoma is people like you who are raising up your children in the word of God. Praise God for you guys and what you're doing. Praise God for this church. Let me just tell you, do not neglect this. It's a fortune that you're holding in your fingertips. When we went to Africa, I started, I started handing out Bibles to all these pastors because most of them didn't even have a Bible. One young man came to me at a conference and said, Pastor Jeff, I've come every year to the conference, but because I'm the youngest guy, I never get a Bible. Could you get me something? So I'm like, man, I've given away everything I have. Come to me tomorrow. The second day he came to me, I said, all right, if you really need a Bible, why? He said, well, I want to study the Bible myself, but I also want to teach our youth group. I said, okay, come the third day. The third day he came back and I said, dude, I don't have anything. I've given everything I have away, but there's a team member who's willing to give you their personal Bible. I pulled him into a room on the other side and I said, if you tell everyone where you got this, we could have a riot. Don't tell anyone. But I handed him a Bible and he held it in his hands like this, like this most precious treasure. And the tears just began flowing down his cheeks. And he starts pulling on his shirt and he says, Pastor Jeff, I don't have anything to give you in return, but if you like my shirt, you can have it. Here's someone who's willing to give the shirt off of his back for a Bible. Now, mind you, he was about five foot two and I'm six foot whatever. And that shirt wouldn't fit me anyway, but I'm like, brother, I don't want you to, I don't want you, I don't want your shirt. I just want you to go love and treasure this book. You know, that young African man had such an impact upon me. 
far more impact than I ever had on anyone at a conference. That kid had such an influence upon me that I came home and I started thinking, man, you know what? I got all these Bibles, 12 of them sitting on my shelf, most of them collecting dust. I've accessed all these Bibles on my cell phones and on my iPad and everywhere else. And most of the time I I neglect it because I'm too busy on Facebook or playing Candy Crush, whatever that is. Or I'm spending all my time on watching some news program that totally sends me into depression. (laughs) Wait, I can neglect all that other stuff, but I'm not going to neglect my Bible. Ben, I started reading. I certainly prepared for all of my messages But I started thinking, I'm not going to just read books about the Bible. I'm going to read the Bible. And can I encourage you to come back to hungering and thirsting for the Bible? Love it, treasure it, give yourself to it. Why? Because it's more to be desired than gold. It's sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. I'm sorry to take this much time. I know I've kept you late today. I want to close this. Ben, are you in the room right now? Is Ben here? Ben is not here or Luke. I think I'm supposed to just close this in prayer. All right. Luke, is that you in the back? Who is that that's raising your hand? I'm, huh? All right. I'll pray for us. Lord, today, I just want to thank you for Sunset Bible Church. I thank you, Lord, for their commitment to and their love for the Bible. And today, I pray that we can just be so encouraged that everything we're doing, investing this Bible into our children and into our young people, into our own communities, Oh, Lord, this is exactly what we need to be doing. And we're not neglecting that fortune that's in our fingertips. At the same time, we have to do a little bit of evaluation. And maybe I can just look at my own life and say, wow, there's other, there's other priorities that have pre- squeezed themselves in. And, and I need to come back to treasuring this book. So, Lord, I pray that we can take a, a next step of loving and treasuring this. And, Lord, help us to be absolutely confident that this is the foundation This is the foundation that everyone around us needs. Man, they need this kind of hope. They need this kind of light. They need this kind of direction. Lord, even today, I don't know. I don't know these, my friends, but maybe there's someone who needed to hear that message about salvation being only by putting your faith in Jesus. And I pray that they'd stop about their works and their own effort to try to appease you. I pray they'd come back and say, wow, you know what? I simply need a savior and I'm going to believe in Jesus and I'm going to let him change my life. So, Lord, I pray that someone today might come to salvation. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.